0: Psalm 112 is in part about generosity and the blessing of God upon the generous. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with a man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He is given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away the desire of the wicked, will perish. And now we come to the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel. Verses 1 through 4. Jesus is in the temple still. He's been teaching. He's been engaged in controversy with his adversaries. And then we come to verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Amen. This little passage before us today shines as something of a candle giving its flickering little light of grace into the very cold, dark, actually sinister place, the Temple of Judaism, had become by the time Jesus came on the scene. Judaism by this time had long since departed from the biblical faith that took root and bore fruit in the lives of such men as Abraham, and Moses, and David, and many, many more. From this final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, we could go back Just a few years and think of the state of things the first time Jesus threw the merchants out of the temple. Back at the beginning of his ministry, some three years earlier in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. The celebrated house of the one living and true God, which was dedicated to the honor of God and to the glory of God. This magnificent house had been allowed to disintegrate, for all intents and purposes, disintegrate into a mere house of merchandise. A religious shopping mall for Jews and their invited guests. A compulsory tourist attraction three times a year for faithful Jews who would make the trip. Judaism at this time was ripe and overripe and rotting for biblical reformation. And, of course, we could go much further back than that to trace the degradation of true biblical religion. We might go back 400 years, for instance, to see what Malachi had been contending with in his age. But let's confine our consideration of things just to the last few days since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem as her long-awaited Messiah and King. Gentle, mounted on a donkey. Since that day, just a couple days earlier, Jesus has thrown the merchants and the money changers out of the temple again, a second time. which, of course, ruffled the feathers of the custodians and stewards of the temple who were the chief priests and scribes and elders. It ruffled their feathers to the point that as chapter 20 opened, they came to him demanding to know by what authority you're doing these things or who is the one who gave you this authority. And we saw in previous weeks how that confrontation turned out for them, didn't we? When the direct approach with Jesus doesn't yield the results they'd hoped for, beginning at verse 19, they send to Jesus spies. That's what the word is, spies. Men pretending to be sincere about their question, but actually intent on hooking him on the horns of that tax dilemma, you remember. Should we pay Caesar's tax or should we not? And then along come the Sadducees with their scoffing at the resurrection and their silly question about those seven consecutive husbands of one woman. All of these mean-spirited traps that had been laid for Jesus there in the temple fail. They all fail. They fail because... Jesus was able to cut through the theological confusion and duplicity and answer them wisely and biblically. He also answered them simply. Simply. The truth about the things that perplex us theologically often turn out to be so simple so straightforward that without jesus help we wouldn't be able to see it because the truth is sometimes hiding out there in the open and that's what we see again and again in chapter 20 and then jesus cuts off debate at the end of that quest at the end of that chapter cuts off debate with a question for them as we saw in verses 41 to 44 How is it, he said, how is it that the Messiah can be both David's son and David's Lord? Because the Bible tells us the Messiah is both. Reading chapter 20, it's pretty clear that once he entered into Jerusalem and into the temple in particular, once he got there, he has entered into the viper's den. Judaism has gotten itself very, very far from the word of God and therefore very, very far from the truth, very far from reality, very far from truth and from justice and from mercy and from everything else. That is worth pursuing. So chapter 20 was Luke's record of the dark and sinister plots laid against Jesus there in the temple. Most of chapter 21 is Jesus' announcement of the coming dire consequences for Jerusalem's failure to receive him, failure to believe him, failure to embrace him as the long-awaited Messiah and King that he is. That full-scale national disavowing of the Christ is going to mean the burning and looting and leveling of the city. It's going to mean the total destruction of Jerusalem. That's what we learn in chapter 21 and we're coming to that. But before we do, before we do, Luke inserts This bright, shining little candle of grace, verses 1 through 4. It's reminiscent of the Bible's little story of Ruth or of Hannah, isn't it? Back in those long ago dark ages of Israel's judges, when there was no king in Israel, everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. Back in those days of the Judges, when everything in Israel looked so black, when hope in the ancient covenant promises of God seemed to be completely snuffed out by the terrible circumstances we're in, even then, back then, vital faith in the living and true God still blazed by grace in the breast of a few such families and individuals as these Ruth, Hannah, and others. And we're witnessing this same phenomenon today, aren't we? Societies and cultures can and do reach the point at which one solitary little act of kindness or of self-restraint or of anonymous generosity or of obedience to the least of God's commandments, these things can actually become newsworthy when they happen. Because behaviors like that are such statistical outliers. People don't do that. People don't act that way. Quiet, godly little actions like these become so rare, so unlooked for, so surprising. Because the prevailing social custom calls not for loving conformity to God's law, but for social and religious, sometimes now even sexual Roll your own sort of humanistic diversity. Do whatever is right in your own eyes. Social custom calls not for speaking the sober, objective truth about things, but for speaking your own mind. Not for generous open-handedness, but for greedy acquisitiveness. Here's the situation now. What can I get out of it? Asking that question becomes the social custom of the times. And so the few nonconformists remaining by grace, the givers, especially those who very easily might be on the other side of things and become takers, these givers stand out. They're a surprise when we see them. And amid all the opposition that Jesus has been facing there in the temple, even Jesus seems surprised when he sees this poor widow. At least to the degree that in Mark's account of this very same thing, when he notices this lone widow quietly going about her business there in the temple, Jesus actually calls his disciples together to point her out for commendation. And he says, essentially, we can imagine him saying, come on over, guys. Take a look at that poor widow over there. You can see her across the crowd. Look at what she's doing. This is something you don't see every day. Let this fleeting sight, this fleeting moment sink into your heads. Remember it, because what you are seeing in this lone, poor widow is remarkable. Now, Jesus has been teaching somewhere in the temple's large outer court of the women, it's called. That's where the 13 collection boxes were kept, into which worshipers would deposit their monetary gifts to support various temple projects. And lots of people were giving. Remember, this was the week of Passover, so... There'd be lots of people in town, lots of people in the temple complex, and lots of people were giving. The rich were paying their tithes maybe more than their tithes. But this woman, and let's just call her Susan, okay? Susan's not her name as far as I know. Let's just call her Susan to keep this just as personal and down to earth as we can. This widow, Susan, she stands out from the crowd. Now, Susan has no intention of doing so. She's just going about her business. She has no idea that anyone's looking. She has no idea that she's attracted anyone's attention or interest or admiration. Fact is, she probably never knew. She probably never found out. She probably spent the rest of her poor life completely ignorant about what we read of here. Her deeds been recorded in God's Word for millions of people to read over the course of these thousands of years. And no one even knows her real name. Because no one ever called her over for an interview. No one seems to know exactly who she was. None of the gospel writers give us her name. And yet like that other anonymous woman who anointed Jesus in the home of Simon the leper in Matthew chapter 26... What Susan did there in the temple that day is going to be spoken of in memory of her until the end of time. Because what she did in the normal course of a normal day, what she did was newsworthy and worth remembering. So what do we know about this woman we're calling Susan? Well, first we know, of course, that she was a widow. She was a widow. Now, how do we know this, do you suppose, if no one ever interviewed her? The Bible doesn't tell us how Jesus or anyone else knew that she was a widow. But there are any number of ways, of course, that they might have found out. Most obvious of which is just ask around. If you keep your eyes and ears open, there's a lot you can learn about a person without their ever knowing. And then there's the way in which a widow typically carries herself in public. Not only there and then, but here and now. For instance, you might consider the colors that she's wearing or not wearing anymore. You might consider the things on which she now spends her money or doesn't spend her money anymore. the things on which she now spends her money, the places she goes or doesn't go anymore, the people she's with or not with anymore. Widows are a very special class of people with special needs of all kinds, all kinds. They were back then and they are now. And the Apostle Paul actually spends the better part of the fifth chapter of First Timothy telling pastors in some degree of detail how the church ought to shepherd and care for widows. This woman was one of them. A widow. She's also a woman, secondly, without any visible means of support, Now, not all widows are this way. Some widows, by their own industry and foresight, or by the industry and foresight of their late husbands, are actually able to carry on and live pretty comfortably for the rest of their lives. But when this particular widow dropped her two copper lepta into the collection box, Jesus said she had put in all that she had to live on. Here's what she put in, and you can do the math as we go. In that monetary system they were using, it took two lepta to make one quadrant unit of money, two lepta to make one quadrant Four quadrants, which would be 8 lepta, equal 1 asarion. And 16 of those come up to the value of 1 denarius, which was the typical wage of the working man in that day. So divide a typical day's wages into 16... And then take one of those parts and divide it again into four. That's what she put in the collection box. And determining the exact value of what she put in and uh, its its purchasing power, that is not our purpose here today. But we can get an idea of just how minuscule the market value of her contribution really was. And Jesus fills us in on the rest this meager pittance that she threw into the box was all she had to live on. At least it was all she had to live on for that day, according to the tight budget that she had to keep, but with all the voracious scribes devouring her house and the houses of so many vulnerable widows like her. It's all she had to live on, according to her budget. All right, then. She's a widow. She's without visible means of support. She's also without a name, as we've seen. She's without a name. In verse 2, Luke just calls her a certain person, a certain poor widow. She's a face in the crowd, a face in the crowd. We've been calling her Susan because she's a person and people deserve to have a name. Even if it's made up. But no one seems to have known exactly who she was or considered her name nearly as worth remembering as her deed. Her deed. If her identity were ever known to the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles, it has certainly been lost to us. And there's something in this particular circumstance, I think, that our self centered, self absorbed, copyright and patent oriented culture needs to hear. Life is made up of deeds, not words actions worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ and the everlasting glory of his kingdom. That's what matters. It's deeds. Not who does it. If I ever do anything worthy of remembrance, I myself, I hope people remember the deed and I hope they remember the grace of the Lord in it rather than my name. I have very close friends who still to this day don't even spell my name right. So, Forget about my name. It's the deed that counts. So she's a widow. She's without any visible means of support. She's without a name. And finally, she is without any awareness of Jesus commending her total devotion to God. Without any awareness of it. She's completely in the dark. She never knew that she's being commended by others, for her generosity to the things of God. She never had to know. And you know what? Neither do you, and neither do I. We don't need to know. And you may ask, why not? Because it is so encouraging. It's so personally encouraging to hear nice things spoken about us, isn't it? It's encouraging. Now, I say nice nice things about this congregation and about each of you all the time, but it's nice to hear them from others as well. But we don't need it. In the final analysis, we don't really need to have our egos stroked, do we? Does it matter that people think and speak well of us? The Apostle Paul Of all people, Paul writes to the Corinthians in the fourth chapter of his first letter to them, and he says, I think God has exhibited the apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. So if an apostle could get by, (laughs) and not only get by, but still bear such abundant fruit for Christ... If an apostle could get by without the positive reinforcement of ever hearing anything good said about him, then so certainly can a poor sinner like me and you. And so did this certain poor widow. Her single-hearted devotion was to the living and true God, and it was total devotion. It claimed everything that she has and everything that she is. And that was enough for her. Dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of a kingdom that has no end. It has no end. To him, Daniel tells us, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Total devotion to that everlasting kingdom is the privilege and duty of every class of people every stratum of society, in every age. Total devotion to that king and his kingdom. And so the redeemed harlot and the poor widow and the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker, we can all join together in singing the hundredth psalm When we sing, he made us, we are his. He made us. We're his. If he made us and we are his, then obviously we're not our own. Let the totality of our devotion rest not in ourselves, but in him. In his kingdom, in his power, in his glory. That has a claim. our devotion. And dear ones, listen. Let's move beyond the the usual snare of total devotion to self. Let me add to that that we should never attempt loving our husbands or our wives or our children or our parents or anyone else for that matter unless we love them for the sake of Of Jesus Christ and the everlasting glory of his kingdom. Love them for his sake. Because the best and truest love, the everlasting, never grows old kind of love, the kind of love that is stronger than death and more jealous than the grave, that love isn't from you but from God. And your love and devotion to frail sinners, apart from the grace and power granted us by the Spirit to do so, your love for them sooner or later is going to grow thin and old and cold, and it'll fail. Your love for others, if it just springs from you. But his love taking root by grace in the heart that is totally devoted to him. His love never fails. Never fails. Our time is just about up, and so I've got to wrap this up with you. Let me do so by asking just a few pointed questions, about four pointed questions, for you to ponder in your hearts don't have to answer them out loud right now, but just ponder them within your hearts. They're about your own personal devotion to God. I want you to ask yourself, first of all, am I seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And if I am, then what outward evidence is there in my life for others to notice? And secondly, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and perfectly content to part if necessary with everything else besides. Am I confident in the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I confident that all these other things, those things for which others rely on mere money, or mere credit, all those things will be providentially added to me? Do I have that confidence that I can put all that I have to live on into the kingdom of God and be perfectly happy, without a fear, without a qualm? Third question is this. Am I content not to be in the limelight of my own giving, to give secretly so that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, as Jesus put it in his Sermon on the Mount? Am I content to be giving and to do so without the limelight, without the spotlight being on me? final question is this. Is Jesus Christ enough for me? Is Jesus Christ enough for me? Is he truly all I need? This is the capstone question, friends, because the sober truth is that the day is coming when everything else will be taken from. And from me. That day is coming when we will be left. Either with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or absolutely nothing at all. That day is coming. Is Jesus Christ enough for me? A moment ago we considered the. The. Uh, earthly impoverishment and the abuse that was suffered not only by Paul, but by all the other apostles with him. Here's a little extract from a thank you note that Paul wrote from prison to a congregation that had just sent him a gift of some kind. They'd sent him a gift. This is a thank you note he wrote back to them. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his sufficiency. Thank you that by grace we are able to part with everything else. If he has claimed our hearts and our lives, he is the good shepherd. Therefore, we will not want, we will not be in need if he is our shepherd. We ask, O Lord, with gratitude for the many other things that you have given us besides. But we know that the day is coming when all of these things will be taken from us. So we thank you for Jesus Christ who will not be taken from us. And we thank you for the abiding presence of his spirit in the hearts of his people. Testifying to him, to his grace, to his sufficiency. Pray that he would truly be to each one of us and to all of us together, our all in all. Grant these things, we pray, by your grace. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen.